0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, from the beginning of the university in the Middle Ages, relations between town and gown, or between students and citizens, began badly and got worse. Perhaps the lowest point was the the St. Scholastica riot in Oxford, which began on February 12th, 1355, in which a tavern punch-up led to an episode of urban warfare that is no exaggeration in describing three days of street battles and besieged colleges, rampaging peasants in from the countryside with showers of arrows going back and forth, ultimately claiming the lives of somewhere between 70 and 100 on both sides. In comparison to this, complaints by modern students that townies' cars speed up when they see undergraduates crossing the street, well, they seem positively quaint. David Staley and Dominic Endicott have a different model in mind for town and gown interaction. In their new book, Knowledge Towns, Colleges and Universities as Talent Magnets, they seek to inspire as many people to act, moving their town, college, company, philanthropy, endowment into a more sustainable growth model. They envision a new societal model, anchored solidly in the local, while enmeshed in the global knowledge economy. At the heart of this new model, they, they argue, should be, will be, a new way of doing college. Dominic Endicott is a venture capitalist, a partner at Northstar Ventures in Newcastle, Tyne and Boston, and he lives in Massachusetts. David Staley is a professor of history at The Ohio State University. This is his third appearance on the podcast. Gentlemen, welcome, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Hello. Thanks very much, Al. So David, um, this book very much uh, comes out of the alternative universities, uh, which we discussed way back in episode 111. Um, it, I saw there are some of the same ideas, but are they're being taken forward. So could you briefly describe what you did in alternative universities and how it led to this book? Well, I can certainly
1: do that. And then I'll have uh, Dominic pick up the story. (laughs) Uh, So uh, in alternative universities, in addition to uh, laying out or exploring 10 models for what universities can be, I think I was also asking another set of questions, a more, I guess, philosophical question. Why do we have universities? What's the university for? Because I think that was what that was what was underlying each one of the, the the alternative universities that I was laying out. What if we thought about universities different? What if we thought about their purpose, their reason for existence, their reason for being? Um, and I think that uh, if not the specific models, although there are, I think a couple of the the models that we that we explore in uh, knowledge towns, I think it's the idea of getting institutions to think differently about why they exist, what their purpose, what their mission is. And that really is central, I think, to what we're doing in, uh, in the Knowledge Towns book. Uh, I also, it, it, it was also very obvious that the Alternative Universities book is what linked the two of us together. And that's maybe where I should let Dominic pick up the story.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe to pick up the thread there, um, as a venture capitalist, it working primarily in the US, I had thought about the power of the American university system and, and, and how much it contributed to the the US economy. And I'd made a couple of investments, but hadn't really gone that deep into it. But I really was interested in investing in alternative universities. So I was sort of googling around and I came across this book. And I, 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 I first looked at it online. I liked it, I ordered it. I said, oh, I love these ideas. It's the first book I've seen that there's a lot of books on university but mostly kind of whining about what what doesn't work and so on and i found this book to be very creative with some out-of-the-box considerations and as a venture capitalist they were effectively foundational models for for businesses so so i reached out to david over linkedin we connected we 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 started to kind of work together on some ideas and really from from those discussions we we ended up really with the genesis of, of this book knowledge town. So it was a serendipitous um, and an amazing story. And as, as David likes to joke, we've actually never met physically, we've, we've done it all virtually, Yes, which, which is also sort of a testament to sort of the, the reality of, of the sort of um, uh, kind of remote first world, IP first world that currently dominates the economy.
1: I joke in the acknowledgments of our book, Al, that uh, now that the book has been launched, uh, maybe this is the occasion for Dominic and I to actually meet uh, and have lunch or a drink together.
0: <laughs> well, the clock the clock is ticking. I mean, it's been launched. <laughs> uh, you argue that there are tremendous pressures for change in both academic institutions and the places where Americans live, and in my marginal notes I wrote, I have not noticed many of these, um, at least perhaps that in an academic institution. So uh, what are some of these and why and what direction are they pushing?
1: The, uh, the biggest pressure I think for, uh, for colleges and universities is, uh, is the demographic cliff, which we've known about for at least a decade. And, and I think institutions have prepared in various degrees but enrollment management becomes sort of the big, the big problem. And there are certainly other other challenges, and we can we can lay these out. But uh, but the concern is that there's just simply a dwindling number of traditional age college students, uh, especially in the Northeast, especially in the Midwest, uh, and this this has you know direct correlation on the, the the survivability of many institutions. We're not we're not the first. There's certainly been many other observers that say over the next decade or so, we could see, on the one hand, we could see either just more closures, and uh, this has almost become sort of a monthly occurrence. Uh, and there's also the possibility of uh, what in the business world is called M&A, mergers and acquisitions. We could see more of those oh. sorts of examples. That is, is I think, maybe one of the biggest challenges facing higher education right now. Uh, it's, it's certainly not certainly not the only one. And I think what we what we point out in the book is that uh, it's not just it's not just institutions of higher learning. It's also, for many of them, the places in which they are located. It's a sort of a twin problem. I mean, maybe they they, they stem from different different sources, but it's the it's the small college or the regional university that's in an economically challenged or economically economic declining area, mm-hmm. and so that's a whole other whole other set of challenges.
2: You know, another twist on this is if you look at the um, key driver of economic growth in the U.S. for the last 40 years has been <clears throat> effectively technology. So um, something like 80% of the growth in the U.S. stock market since 1980 has been driven by venture-backed companies. And that's been a huge success story for the U.S. overall. it's It's really helped the U.S., um, grow faster than other countries and sort of maintain its global leadership. Uh, and that's been the good news. The bad news is that um, technology operates along what they call the power law, which is effectively the the winners kind of get everything you know the, there's only one search engine, there's only one major social network and so on and, and what that means is that um, that's actually contributed to inequality at many many levels, including geographically right And so you've seen, an increasing concentration of of all the value in the U.S. into a small number of, of, sort of superstar cities like Boston and and uh, San Francisco um, and L.A. and places like that, New York, uh, and really to the detriment of of many other locations, uh, and that's a that's a big problem, right? So I think if it's not checked, uh, we could see it continuing, um, but but I think part of our thinking is that actually the, the remote uh, phenomenon that's come out with COVID and the, the shifts in work that that entails could actually give us an opportunity to, to rethink that at a fundamental level and really to envisage the renaissance of, of small locations and small colleges.
0: And we should emphasize the pressures that exist on small on small towns and rural towns in America throughout mid the Midwest, the South, California, Central Valley of California, all all these places. Those there are also these these tremendous pressures for change exist there as well. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, absolutely, and- they've been at the at the front end of deindustrialization. Um, you know, exhaustive agriculture. So we were talking about regenerative um, before we we started on this discussion, but um, most of American agriculture is exhaustive. It's basically draining the, the land bank. Um, and so many rural areas have been at the, you know, first industrialized or, or, or subjected to sort of exhaustive uh, agriculture. And then as it's been pull, pulling back, they're sort of left with no new business model um, and they're far away from the centers. And so there's a real struggle to then reimagine what could we do differently.
0: Everyone talks about the knowledge economy. Um, and it's very, very important. But it occurred to me as I'm reading your book that uh, we really should um, define what the knowledge economy is. So, Dominic, could you define what the knowledge economy is? Um, so,
2: I, I think you can think of it as a system um, which um, effectively is is taking new ideas, new technologies, and then transferring them uh, into businesses, um, uh, and then creating work, training people up in, in a new set of skills. Y- you can, at some level, argue that the knowledge um, economy has been going on for a long time. Ever since we sort of settled into agriculture, there's a lot of embedded knowledge. Manufacturing, there's a huge amount of knowledge in that. So at some level, you could just say that the, the current iteration of, of the knowledge economy is just the next version of that. Um, but increasingly today it's being mediated in, in a kind of ethereal way. You can do so much on the cloud, on a podcast, in in a virtual way, that it's it's now that I think the, the new twist is that the, the the location kind of matters in a different way. It matters a lot, but it matters in a different way.
0: And knowledge workers, as you make clear throughout the book, have a tremendous economic effect upon where they live. Is that simply because they're better paid?
2: Yes, Um, you can sort of think about the example of somebody that's earning, uh, say, a Silicon Valley salary, but maybe has been able to uh, move to a a small town, they probably have moved from being, you know, when they were living in in California, in, in say, San Francisco, maybe they were kind of middle income for for that city, They, they now may be sort of the highest income person in a community as they spend money on a whole bunch of services, that tends to cascade into a wave of new jobs. And so those people are what you can kind of think of as high multiplier people because they they help generate lots of other jobs. Even more interestingly, if you could imagine, somebody comes into a community, creates a company, that company starts to grow, maybe over the years it gets to hundred people. And many of those people maybe wouldn't have lived in that area except because of this company. The effect could be quite significant, right? So, if you look at sort of somebody at the extreme, like Jeff Bezos, his decision to move to Seattle as opposed to another city has probably caused at least directly and indirectly 250,000 jobs to be created in Seattle. So that's a, a very interesting phenomenon to harness. It's also something we have to be very careful because it it is an evidence of this superstar economy, and we also want to sort of balance uh, this kind of person with all sorts of other talents, because to make a community, you need a very, very diverse range of talents, right? So we can't just make it about the economic multiplier. It has to be about social multipliers and other kinds of multipliers.
0: And as you make clear, I'm sorry, David, go ahead. No, I was just going to uh,
1: just elaborate to say that um, the, um, the philosopher Roberto uh, Mangabiera uh, Unger wrote a book called The Knowledge Economy, and this ties into something that, that, that Dominic was saying a minute or two ago, that if you look at sort of the last wave of the knowledge economy, uh, industrialization, industrialization began in a concentrated location, right? You know, England, you know, the, the, the north of Europe, but ultimately industrialization as, a, as an economic phenomenon spread spread widely everywhere. And we can point to all sorts of examples of this. You know, Detroit spins off, you know, Toledo and, 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 and other, other uh, sorts of cities. We haven't reached that stage yet with the digital economy, uh, the, or the digital knowledge economy. And part of what he's arguing and others have argued is that that's sort of the next stage. As Dominic suggests, Right now, the knowledge economy in in its current iteration is concentrated in a few places. What we're imagining, what we're seeing is, again, like we've seen in earlier historical periods, a sort of spread of that economy
0: across a more disparate geographic area. I mean, listeners to the podcast will start to discern that I might have a Strange Dayton, Ohio obsession because this is not the first time I've mentioned it. I, but it is, I think, intensely interesting to me that in the 1890s Dayton had more patents per capita than any other city in America. By Kettering, a long, by, yeah, and Kettering and the Wright brothers, and that in some ways the Wright, of course, the Wright brothers would be from Dayton, and of course, moreover, that uh, gosh, I can never remember his last name, but their their mechanic who worked in their bike shop you know, this sort of unschooled genius at his fingertips who saw an internal combustion engine once before um, uh, for like 15 minutes could recreate it uh, enough to power the right flyer uh, because it worked on principles that he understood and he he had that skill, you know, he had 10 brains in his fingertips. But you have to wonder, you know, what is it about Dayton that made Dayton Dayton? And how do we create, more Dayton's, but uh, let's. We'll, I guess we'll get to that in just a second. But if you want to reply to that, David? Though before we, before we do,
1: no, it's it's a great example and and a perfect example of what I'm talking about about how industrialization was more became more geographic dispersed. We think that this is the direction that the that the current knowledge economy is heading. where it's sort of in the early early phases of that, uh, but but. Uh, much of what we argue in the book is predicated on on that assumption. I think.
0: Right. Let's we'll talk. Let's address that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, you're arguing that COVID presses us towards decentralization. Now, that of course was an assumption that I had, and lots of people had. As soon as it happened, well, this is going to press us to decentralization. We had the first, you know, weeks and months of, of the lockdown and telework and all the rest of that stuff. And yet, um, at least by a year into COVID. The numbers seem to be a little shaky. Um, and there's certainly, uh, when I hears of it, I heard it from my wife, for her the consulting firm for who she works, uh, my uh, others, that certainly, interestingly enough, 20-something workers were very interested in going into work. Um, Older people were not and they're, they're at, the, at the highest level, there was a great deal of uh, there was a war going on. I think Brennerell, our uh, who, uh, friend of the podcast, was saying there's a war going on between the sort of the top executives and then sort of the, the next the, the next was at the C-suite, the next lower executives between whether we should go back to work or not. So what are the numbers, Dominic, on decentralization, on going back to work, on the turn towards the virtual workspace? So, I mean,
2: after now, you know, three years of this, um, it, it varies by geography in the U.S. Um, for the most part uh, the level of, of, you know, how many people go into the ma- major city five days a week versus, you know, people that were doing it three years ago, it's still around about 50%, right? So it has stuck at a pretty significant level. Um, uh, you know, some of the early work suggested that there were productivity benefits from work from home, Um, But then I think there's there's a concern that we were kind of banking on prior innovation and that the longer time passes, we will lose the sort of water cooler effect. And as you say, there is there is sort of a battle going on. Um, uh, You know, some of the uh, technology leaders were very early in in going all in on remote. Uh, Many of them are now um, in, in a reset mode. And part of that reset is to probably pull back a little bit on that and and want more people in the office. Um, I think it's very clear that for younger people, spending some time, uh, you know, in the office, socializing, um, you know, spending more time with senior people, getting that informal learning is really really critical. Uh, people can be very lonely at home, and so it's still somewhat unsettled, but but when you look at the, the, the core preference of the knowledge workers that have the most, um, say, market power, which tend to be the people with the most experience, um, they have a lot of market power and they're basically saying, you know, I, I'm willing to come in a couple of days a week if there's an important meeting, but what I'm not willing to do, and I'll move on to some other place, is if you want me to come in nine to five, commute for, you know, three hours a day, to spend eighty percent of my time in the office on Zoom calls just doesn't make any sense, right? There was a fundamental illogic to the world before COVID. COVID blew it up. We're never going to go back to that. What we will go back is to a more purpose-based approach, where you say, "Hey, I, I um, you know, I need to go and spend, you know, one or two days a week uh, networking inside my organization, so I'm going to go into the office, or we're going to have an offsite." And we're going to spend a whole week, the whole company, um, really spending intense time together. We'll sort of minimize use of electronics and really maximize FaceTime. Or um, I could see this happening, for example, in London pre-COVID, where people would live a couple of hours outside of London. But then they would come in for one or two days and they would sort of make, you know, most of the meetings happen in London. And people would come in from different parts. They'd get together. They'd have the meeting go back to the, to the shires, as it were. So think you can see a lot of these new models emerging, but it won't be the old model. Mm-hmm.
1: When this is uh, uh, an important part of what Dominic brings to our collaboration, uh, uh, our examples are as much uh, uh, European, uh, uh, UK uh, as they are American. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I, I, uh, yes, there was certainly a lot, of, uh, a lot of talk during the pandemic or obviously still in pandemic mode, uh, but you, you're right. The, the picture has become slightly muddled. Uh, I can point to uh, all sorts of anecdotes, all sorts of examples of this. Al, as you know, I live in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, there is still a concern being expressed by some civic leaders uh, that uh, workers haven't returned to offices, that, that, uh, that uh, buildings downtown are sitting relatively empty. And in fact, uh, there's, uh, there's not just talk, there's some action about repurposing some former office buildings as uh, as apartments or condos or something like that, because workers haven't returned. Uh, city leaders are actually kind of concerned about this because that's the way the tax base works. You're taxed on sort of where uh, uh, where you're working, and if people are living in the suburbs or if they're you know, if they're working from their homes in the suburbs or in the exurbs, uh, that has uh, that has potential tax implications. Uh, a couple of companies uh, that uh, uh, here in here in town. That have said, yeah, we're staying. Uh, we're staying with completely remote work. Uh, it's good for business. Our our productivity, our bottom line is uh, is, is is terrific. It's improved. Um, I I wonder, and uh, if, if in in the face of studies, I'll retract this. I really wonder if there's a water cooler effect, or if this is this is uh, something that uh, especially managers talk about as a way to to bring workers back in. Oh, you know, we need to have that that camaraderie. We need to have that water cooler effect. When in fact, what's happening is uh, that they need to supervise workers, or at least they feel the need to supervise, uh, supervise employees. And I think that's going to be something that's, that, that's going to come out of the pandemic. Uh, uh, if workers are just as productive working remotely, uh, do we need uh, a whole level of middle management uh, in the business of sort of supervising workers? That's maybe a little, a little off topic there. No. Uh, one other anecdote I'll point to is uh, during the pandemic, and I think we've still seen some instances of this. Um, uh, the, the, the realtors have been pointing to uh, more and more people that uh, want homes in the suburbs uh, and also want homes that will give them, like I have here, the opportunity to set up an office, to set up a remote office, uh, as opposed to what happened during the pandemic where, you know, you'd set up the computer on the kitchen table and that would disrupt, you know, family life. Uh, there's, there, there's some indication that this is the way, uh, uh the, the, real estate market has, has been, has been moving. And again, maybe that's just an echo of the pandemic. Uh, but we think that's something that will probably have some staying value.
0: I, I think that, um, a lot of this is, a, a failure to appreciate the power of even small percentage change, um, early on in the, uh, pandemic, my father and I were chatting about homeschooling. What would homeschooling do during the pandemic? And I said, you know, homeschooling is like two, 2.3%. It'll be a big deal if it becomes 3%, uh, which it would be because that would be, you know, but now, now the latest thing is our sh- sh- stats are showing it's up to eight, which is huge. I mean, for homeschooling is a fourfold increase. That's it's, it's insane. Now it's still Tiny compared to other types of schooling, but relative to homeschooling, you know, um, and you could say the same thing that decentralization effects, like going from two to eight, that's a, a huge push towards decentralization of when you're almost to ten percent of elementary age or K through twelve schooling is homeschool. That has a tremendous implications. Uh, that's a big shift, uh, and likewise, it might not be everyone who possibly can is going to be in Zoom office, but if only, I don't know what the, the figures are, but if half of, that, half of that was, it would still be huge. If 20% of that happened, it would be huge.
2: Well, you, you asked for some data, and I, I actually remembered I'd just seen something just today which looked at the change in office rents from 2019 to 2022 across different cities. And so, interesting enough, there were some cities where office rents have gone up. Hmm. Charlotte, Raleigh, Boston, Minneapolis, San Diego. Um, part of the idea is that a lot of those places... Are very tight. They have a lot of life sciences, which mm-hmm. you really can't do it remotely, um, and also very sort of desirable cities to move into. The ones that have gone down the most: San Francisco has gone down the most, so it lost thirty-one percent in rent. Manhattan lost fourteen percent, then Philadelphia, and so on. Right, and so uh, you know, one of the factors with San Francisco, I think, is it's made itself a less livable city. Um, through, I think, quite known um, failures of governance. I think New York has some of the same issues as well as the fact that a lot of the work there was in finance, which is more easy to do remotely and, so, and, and services. And so that's, that's sort of moved out. So I think it, it's also going to be differential and it's you know, by city and also by, by kind of job.
1: Well, and just to be clear, uh, I think a big part of what we talk about in our book is the pull effect of, yes. of desirable places. It's not just I can't afford San Francisco. It's, you know, maybe I want to live in a place that, you know, allows me to, you know, go kayaking or closer to my family or uh, uh, I can get uh, good, inexpensive housing, better quality of life.
0: Well, let's talk about the pull effect since, after all, in the subtitle, there is the pull effect, there's the talent magnet. So you talk about talent magnets. What is, David Staley, what is a talent magnet? And what are some of the principles behind becoming a talent uh, for a place, a town, a village to become a talent magnet?
1: So the talent that we're referring to here is sort of knowledge workers, or, uh, or, or I think maybe we take a, uh, a broader definition of talent uh, from the perspective of colleges and universities uh, who, who also are in the talent attraction business but a very uh, a very specific sort of demographic and i think part of what we're arguing in the book is that colleges and universities need to see their mission as attracting a, a broader scale of talent so the talent we refer to is again not just traditional age college college students but tech workers knowledge workers life science workers um, um a, a broader sort of definition of this and so a talent magnet is a place that has so been designed to be attractive for these sorts of workers. And there, uh, there's across a whole host of uh, dimensions that we, that we see a talent magnet as, as being such an attractor. And maybe Dominic, you could lay out some of these.
2: So yeah, I mean, fundamentally, if you say, well, what would make you wanna live in a place that's different than where you are now?
1: Dayton, Ohio, if we're going to take that case.
2: <laughs> exactly. So at a very fundamental level, affordability, and it, so the cost of buying a house or renting a house, but it's also the cost of commuting. It's the cost of health care, living, and so on. So that that's one factor. Um, uh, I think you could, you could think of another one as the quality of life, right? Can you go kayaking? Can you walk the streets? Um, is it walkable? Is it bikeable? I think a lot of us would desire that and we we vote with our feet where we go for vacation uh, to those kinds of places. I think we all know that's what we want. Often it's very hard to do that in today's housing model. So you can have affordability um, and we'll we'll have sprawl, but then you you can't really bike to work or walk to work because you're in in a sort of car dominated cities, right? So combining housing affordability and this sort of high quality experience has been something hard to do in our current sprawl model. Our belief is there's a new design paradigm that allows you to reconcile those two. And then you also want to have a kind of dynamic economic engine, because ultimately, you know, if you want to uh, have fun and, and afford the cost of living, even if it's cheaper, you still need a dynamic economy. That often comes at the expense of affordability. So you can have affordability or a dynamic economy, but you can't have both. And then the fourth is a knowledge ecosystem, because effectively the engines of the future economic uh, drivers the new businesses that are going to be growing and creating jobs are probably ultimately going to be spun out in, in one way or another from the universities, right? So you need a some level of a, of a knowledge enterprise, which could be a university, it could be a college, it could even be a museum, it could be any kind of institution, it could be a, a hospital. We actually talk about the Mayo Clinic as effectively acting as a cornerstone uh, for creating a knowledge economy around Rochester, Minnesota. So there's many ways of, of, of doing that, but you need those four elements. And then you can think about an element that's sort of sitting above it all, which is purpose. Like, is this a place that's going places or is it a place that's looking at the past and has kind of lost its mojo? And finding that sense of purpose for the place, but also for the individuals is is also really critical.
0: And so all five of those things can be done by Charlotte, by Dayton, but also by Farmville, Virginia. Uh, Every place. I mean, like six population, 7,000. But, and and it can be, and and Farmville has you know, Longwood University, a state school there. So that, that's a tremendous advantage. Um, but even places, um, oh, let's say Lawrenceville, um, Virginia, which does not, and is in one of the poorer parts of the state, that could also do the same. This is something that you're saying uh, can be done and actually should be done by all sorts done. of places, but is not being
2: done. Is not being done, right? And you say, well, w- what's happening? W- what's what's going wrong? Why, why aren't they seizing on the opportunity? You say, well, let me ask you a question, right? how many kids bike to school every day? Because if you, if, if you tell me that the answer is 80% bike to school every day, I'll say, well, that's a healthy sign. Um, if you tell me it's 5% and they're going to school by car or by bus, I'll say, mm, that's a problem, right? Um, Why do people, um, well, because uh, effectively now um, the whole model of going to school, coming back from school, you know, the sports you do, it's all gonna be governed by the car. You're going to effectively, the the parents will be taxi drivers, shuttling the kids back and forth. Kids are going to lose autonomy. They're going to lose fitness. Uh, They're going to have to get fat. Uh, All sorts of things are going to be happening. They're going to be breathing lots of bad air. So if that's the model, um, that's probably not particularly attractive compared to if if somebody said, okay, here's two choices. One place where your kid can bike to school. You don't have to worry because everybody bikes to school. They all come back. It's, it's safe. They're not going to get killed. They're not going to breathe bad air. I mean, who would not vote to move their family to a place like that, other things being equal? Um, and so if, if your place isn't like that, that's a bad sign. At the other end of the spectrum, how is it for older people? Are they you know, uh, in the middle of nowhere in some sort of senior living home where they don't communicate with anybody? Or are they trapped in their homes because, again, you know, maybe they, they can't drive anymore and they're uncomfortable driving? but they can't. There's no other way. There's no train. There's no bike. There's no way for them to get around. So they're trapped. So I think if you look at the two edges of society, kids and older people, and you see that that's not working, people with disabilities, right? The people that are most disenfranchised and most vulnerable, if they're not doing well, that's not a talent magnet. If you design it for those people to be doing well, everybody else will be doing well. And that's the kind of place that attracts us. But that's not easy to do, right? Because we've built a model for the last 100 years, and and we'd have to start to reverse that. And, And that's uncomfortable for places. And they don't have an economic risk return model. They don't really know how to think about it. So this is an uncomfortable place, especially for Americans.
1: Well, and part of what we're describing here, as 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 we talk about talent magnets, is uh, the reason we've titled the book "Knowledge Towns" is that we want to identify a different dynamic. Uh, you started the uh, the interview, Al, by talking about uh, town gown. I think we see uh, in our book, I, I we don't we don't I don't think we call it as such, but you could call ours sort of uh, next generation town gown relations, mm-hmm. because someone listening to this podcast could say. Um, well, it, don't we already have a situation like this? You know, here's a small town, and there's a college or something located in it. Uh, we're talking about a very particular sort of arrangement in our knowledge towns model, uh, and in fact, we chose the name uh, knowledge towns to make it uh, expressly different from the college town model. Uh, without naming any specific, although I could, I suppose I could start to name specific places. I, I'm sure you can imagine. A small town with a college in it where the college is, at least from a placemaking or economic development vantage point, sort of aloof and distant and over here in one sort of corner. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm currently consulting with a, uh, with a, with a university, unnamed university, uh, in, a, in a small town uh, that, it's not like this anymore, but at one stage literally had a wall that separated it from the rest of the town. And in as much as there is sort of a connection, economic or otherwise, uh, and again, you can point to all sorts of instances, uh, without the college, there wouldn't be a town. In other words, the town exists to sort of support the, you know, the 3,000 or so students and faculty that are there. So restaurants yeah. and bars and closed shops and those sorts of things. That's not the model that we are talking about in a knowledge town.
0: You can always, I mean, there's, you could, I can always tell this from the folklore of students, um, so in the introduction, I started with, the, well, townies always speed up when they see us, right? Exactly. That's where you, you always can tell. That's like the basic blood pressure for how undergraduates are relating to the place. Now, they'll say that in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, Dickinson College students will. Um, they don't say that in Lexington, Virginia, where Washington and Lee has always been, and VMI, for that matter, as, as, as best as you can be, are really integrated. Lexington's proud of having, be, having not just one, but two colleges there and uh and benefiting from their talks and lectures and concerts and there's always been that more of an integration i think in place in certain places they're lexington's rather than the Carlisle's. They're like two mm-hmm. different types of, of of towns
1: that's the direction that uh, our knowledge towns model uh heads i think though i think with this with the sort of added approach of the talent magnet strategy so uh in addition to all that you've just described right there uh, part of what a college or university under a knowledge town model does is engages in, for instance, creative placemaking. Uh, it, yeah, well,
0: it, let's it, l- let's talk about that. You, you describe this is what you describe as a knowledge enterprise um, that your idea for creating a talent is that a bunch of uh, a group of concerned citizens. It's very de um, They're going to get together and they're going to legislate amongst themselves. Uh, they're going to form, there will be a president and the secretary and, uh, you know, and a court and a treasurer, and they're going to start to form a knowledge enterprise. And that will be the basis for a ta- talent magnet strategy for Lawrenceville, Virginia, you know, and, or, and that is the
1: case that we begin with. We, uh, as you're alluding to, we have a number of scenarios starting from a, a place that literally doesn't exist. There's no town, there's no, there's no college and Dominic and, Sort of lay out some of those examples, but m- maybe a moment to talk about knowledge enterprise, uh, which is a concept that we steal from, uh, 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 Michael Crow and William DeBars from their book, uh, The Fifth Wave. Uh, though I think we define it uh, differently. Uh, and so we, we, we use the term knowledge enterprise as a way to describe a college or university that has or that follows the talent magnet model that we lay out. So in other words, it's not just an incumbent college or university doing the you know the sorts of things that that that, that you know, it's typical for a small college in a small town. Um, we're talking about a very different sort of enterprise, um, and so we wanted to find a way to sort of distinguish this. We're talking about the knowledge uh, enterprise that's. You know, has a you know has a football team and has a business major and an IT major and has you know fraternities and sororities, but is also engaged in regional economic development and creative placemaking. So, as as a central part of its mission, a central part of its reason for existence, is to partner with the town for um, uh, I guess for a double win, so that the town and the uh, institution uh, are growing and thriving together. Uh, Dominic, maybe you can start off with with our models, although we have we have a number of these, starting with sort of the tabla yes. rasa.
2: <laughs> yes, um, and, and by the way, it's it's really interesting to, to think about the fact that um, colleges, many of them, have these huge endowments. They're putting money into these these uh, you know venture capital funds and hedge funds all around the world. They will often explicitly exclude investing in their local area. So they're, you know, they, they're taking advantage of the fact that they were started in a certain location. They probably got, you know, free land and all these benefits. But then now that they're mature and they're strong, they're they're kind of like, you know, putting money into hedge funds, forgetting about their their hometown.
0: Um, can I can I share an, an anecdote that I thought when I read, was reading that part of the book, um, Edward Schills, in I think his uh, portraits about. University of Chicago intellectuals and personalities or basically his autobiography of a sociologist. He remembers how Robert Hutchins, he would go in and offer unsolicited advice as a young man, very young man who had basically just been a social worker and a captain in the OSS during World War II, but also was now teaching at the LSE and, uh, and Chicago half the year. He would go in and offer Hutchins all sorts of unsolicited advice. And as a social worker during the new deal, Shills was very concerned with life on the street and the neighborhood around uh, of an, the nature of a neighborhood. And he just thought that by 1948, 50, that Hyde Park wasn't quite what it had been. and shouldn't Chicago put more money into Hyde Park, develop make a, a good neighborhood for the na- the citizens of Hyde Park and for the, the University of Chicago, win-win-win. We'll get to the triple win. Um, uh, so Shills is thinking about this, I have to say, guys, long before you. Uh, and Hutchins mm-hmm. laughs and said, no, 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 we want Chicago to be as boring as possible <laughs> and awful as possible. That way professors will get more scholarship done. Uh, yeah. he's not, well, I, don't think he's, I don't think he's the first or last college president to feel that way in a weird, in a strange way. And you look at the paradox of, say, Yale with one
2: of the yeah, 20 billion plus endowment yeah. and yet New Haven hasn't thrived um so actually so pick up an example of 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 a place or a college that sort of understood this and reacted is colby college in waterville maine waterville maine seeded colby college um and including at one point when it was threatening to move to portland they gave it you know some of the best real estate a huge chunk of land on a mountain where, where the current college is is based it was initially in the downtown it then moved into the hills where where that separation emerged um but but the current president president green who actually came from chicago as soon as he he came on he had this vision to really do something different and and, and, and rekindle this relationship and kind of in a sense pay back to the town the favor they they had done in, in creating the college and so he he raised a very large fund dear northward with a very sort of powerful mission. And then very quickly, they started to put money they raised from that fund into the town of Waterville. They built a hotel, they built classrooms, um, they worked with the town to uh, make it a more walkable area. So they did many of the things that we we think of in, in terms of becoming a talent magnet. Um, and, and it's still a work in progress. Waterville, Maine is a city that sort of suffered through the loss of industrialization and so on, but it's definitely a quant, I mean, if you go there today, it is night and day from what it was six or seven years ago, right? So I think you can start to see that. And that's an exemplar of, of, of one archetype, which is you have a strong college and a weak town, and that's what the right move is there. The other one could be an example of a, of a weak um, college or a non-existent college and a relatively strong town and even sort of a strong institution. And I referred to earlier of, of the, case study of Rochester, Minnesota, where you had the, the Mayo Clinic, but you had no college. And, uh, and Steve Lemko, uh, uh, who became sort of the chancellor of, of that new college, basically created almost on the fly an extension of the University of Minnesota in Rochester in partnership with the Mayo Clinic to sort of create that knowledge enterprise that did not exist. So you can kind of think of those. Um, there are more extreme situations where you can conceive of a place where there's really very little And you can kind of get started. And in the book, we actually sort of talk through some examples, right? So you can even say, uh, maybe there's uh, there's some ideas people are talking about. Let's create a a new place out of nothing. You could sort of find a beautiful lake Mm -hmm. where there's maybe a small town. And you could say, why don't we partner up with the people in that town? And and we'll create a, a, a bigger town. And we'll create a university. And we'll make something out of nothing. Which seems like a crazy idea today. But you go back in history, and we did it all the time, right? we just forgotten how to do it.
0: Yeah, it's it. There are historical precedents for everything that you're describing. So I we just I just had several conversations now that all seem to turn back to uh, they're like Grinnell, uh, not, well Grinnell College would be one, Grinnell, Iowa. Um, uh, I'm sorry, um, a Oberlin College in Oberlin, Indiana, um, Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. All these places were called colonies. Um, it's not because they were surrounded by natives. Those had been, they'd been deported along, pushed west long before that. But they were somehow their colonies of the mind as well as of, the, of a place. Um, I was thinking about this in relation to the book. Um, William & Mary, which was always a college on life support until World War II, um, spun off Old Dominion, Christopher Newport, and Richard Bland College, and also Virginia Commonwealth in Richmond, uh, so at some point, the Virginia legislature, if not William & Mary, had a plan for these were basically night schools, often like I think Old Dominion started for sailors in Norfolk, uh, but they used them all as economic development drivers for at least four or five different communities uh, in the Tidewater region of uh, of Virginia, which is pretty foresighted and you
1: well, and I, I like your use of the word foresight, Al, because I think one of the things that we that we sort of argue in the book is, um, and and I think we try to be as gentle of this as possible. I, 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 we began this conversation by talking about enrollment management as as sort of the main the main sort of strategy. I think that most colleges and universities are are, are engaged in uh, to stave off you know stave off the uh, the um, the demographic cliff. Uh, I, again, I can point to, we point to some examples in the book. Uh, there is a, we'll call it a regional university in the Midwest. I don't, I, I don't want to say more of what it is. Uh, you know, a decade ago, they had 25,000 students, uh, in the, in, in this small town. They're down to like 14,000 now. And. To get out of that spiral, it's not, well, we'll just have to do enrollment management better, or we'll have to just, you know, attract more undergraduates through, you know, uh, the right programs and, you know, we'll right size our programs and these sorts of things. Uh, I'm not certain that these are long-term strategies. Uh, uh, and the 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 all the places that we've talked about here in some ways had to reinvent themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the uncomfortable argument that we're making in the book uh for for both cities and towns and the uh, institutions the uh, the institutions of higher education that uh, that reside in them they really are going to have to think about reimagining their purpose their mission who they are as an institution uh, if they're going to thrive uh we conclude the book with a uh, with an historical example of uh, franklin college which i know you've never heard of or you have i'm actually kind of impressed uh, in the 19th century, Franklin College was one of the leading colleges in Ohio, uh, abolitionist uh, school. It actually uh, educated some of the leading abolitionists, and I'm not going to remember the name of the governor, but there was a governor of Ohio that was educated there. Founded in 1818 as uh, Alma College, changed its name to Franklin College. By 1919, it was uh, shuttered, uh, and there were all sorts of all sorts of reasons for this. Uh, uh, maybe not the least of which. Uh, Franklin College is located in uh, New Athens, Ohio. I had to go to my map to figure out where New Athens is. It's in the eastern part of the state uh, in Appalachia. Uh, And I think that there were uh, there were lots of places like uh, like like New Athens and lots of colleges like Franklin uh, that uh, that suddenly that after a period of thriving. Uh, just simply couldn't survive anymore for all the small colleges in Ohio that remain today there are I don't know how many Franklin colleges that that, that failed to adapt that failed to change and I think we're in a similar sort of moment right now uh, and that the that the successful strategy is not well, well you know we'll cut prices or you know we'll start a business major or have more nursing uh, programs uh, that that, that to really survive and thrive, these places are going to have to reimagine their very reason for being.
0: You uh, hold the prospect of forward of that, if they do, they can achieve a triple win growth. Dominic, could you explain what triple win growth is?
2: So, so we think of it as combining economic growth, social growth, so, so call it lifting up everybody rather than sort of having inequality and then environmental growth. And implicitly, we tend to think that those things are in in competition, right? So I can have a thriving economy, but I'm gonna have to have have cars everywhere. We can't operate without cars, and therefore we we can't do that. And yeah, if there's smog, and if we have to sort of drive um, highways through low-income neighborhoods and raise those neighborhoods, it's too bad. It's just, it's necessary for the economy, right? And that's been an implicit, if not explicit assumption of the last 100 years what we're saying is actually there's a way to redesign things where you get everything you want um and so you get more income you get more equality some some more middle class lifestyles so it's not just about the very rich as everybody gets lifted up and you get better care you know reduce smog and so on and, and so it can all be done and you can look at certain places in the US where that's happened you can look at countries like Switzerland, where they've done a really, really good job of, 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 of very deliberately making those sort of simultaneous I- improvements, but it's kind of a design issue. If you don't design it right, you won't get it. And a nice analogy is how uh, in the 1970s, uh, the Japanese started to take market share from the American car companies and the American car companies said, well, I can give you, you know, great price, um, but unfortunately it will be not great quality you can have better quality and, and sort of, oh, it's going to be more expensive. The Japanese actually said, you know, actually, we can take some American ideas from people like Forrester and so on, apply them into manufacturing in Japan, and we get low cost um, and higher quality. And that's how they blew away the American car system. And I think you can kind of think about something very similar to that in terms of designing better. And you say, well, what does that really mean? Fundamentally, you know, one of the best concepts is, is the idea of, of building kind of a dense core where you're, you're putting more uh, into the sort of center of the city, you're slowing down the street. So it's not like you have no cars, but you're, you're sort of keeping it to 20 miles an hour. You know, if, if somebody gets hit at 20 miles an hour, they can probably survive. If they get hit at 30 or 40, they're likely to die, especially a kid. So slowing down cars, uh, making them guess, and, and sort of putting them as secondary citizens and putting people walking, people biking as primary citizens, Rethinking your green space, bringing in more technology in, into a city. So starting companies and using venture capital as a way to sort of kickstart the knowledge economy outside of the university. Because one of the challenges is universities are great to attract talent to say Grinnell, right? But then the day they graduate, 99% of those people leave. And so they're, they're good at attracting, they're just not good at retaining by starting up. And, and then they do little seed programs and that's sort of useful, but they, they don't really create enough critical mass. Um, I'll give you an example. Cambridge, England, I just saw a study uh, a couple of days ago. The University of Cambridge generates 30 trillion, sorry, billion a year in in value to the British economy. They estimate 25 billion of that 30 comes from technology, both the R&D, but also more critically, the startups they've created around Cambridge. So they've now created a reason for people to stay post-graduation and, and, and continue to sort of pay back into that economy and for that you really need venture capital right so it's, it's really packaging all of that together and it's not easy right you need to be thinking systemically you probably need a group of concerned citizens coming together and betting on the long run and that's what has to be done
0: well let's let's finish there because we've just got a few more minutes left but this is a very hopeful book and there's an idea that people with of goodwill and uh, concern can do something about their place and recreate it. Uh, David, I remember one of your, I think it was Ted Columbus. You talked about uh, how Columbus could be Florence and even better because Florence, when Florence was Florence, it had what, 45,000 people? Uh, Something like that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Like nobody, nothing. not had (laughs) nobody there. But it was Florence. Um, And so again and again, you give, so can we conclude with that? Just a few short, brief observations about if people want to start now, where should they begin?
1: Uh, well I'll start and then uh, uh, Dominic has lots of ideas here we spend a lot of time in the book talking about leadership uh, but leadership doesn't necessarily mean the the, the usual suspects I guess uh, though uh, I will I will say that uh, we spend a fair amount of time talking about uh, university leadership and again reimagining uh, the, the, the the function the purpose the mission of university leadership so we, we, we talk, at length about what uh, you know, we sort of address. You're a university president. Uh, here's what you can be doing uh, to uh, to advance a, ta- a talent magnet uh, a strategy. Um, I, I'd like to think it is a hopeful book. Uh, uh, I, I, in another in another sense, I might even call it visionary. Uh, but we understand that uh, that that there's a lot of work that has to happen. It is possible, uh, but there's uh, uh, it, it's 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 not going to be an easy lift. And it starts with the idea again of reth- uh, of completely rethinking the nature and purpose of your institution. Uh, Dominic, uh, ways to uh, ways to actualize what we're talking about.
2: So a very practical and tactical idea is we've created a, a single slide, a PowerPoint, one slide with a talent magnet framework summarized, which I'm happy to share with you and you can
0: for the share notes. with
2: any of your readers. And it's just a really good way to just kind of go through that as a checklist and just say, along all these dimensions, how are we doing? Right. And that's a really good starting point because once you do that, you can kind of do a diagnostic and then you start thinking about what could we be doing differently? Um, and, and so, and I think one of our pending items from this book is actually to sort of create a playbook, which we're sort of in the process of doing to, to help. People go beyond that that diagnostic and then figure out, well, what's the next step? How do you get together? But I'd say if a group of concerned citizens get together, they score themselves, you know, realistically using the talent magnet framework, which you can do in an afternoon over a couple of years, right? It's not an intense piece of work. And you'll probably nail it 80% right in that instance. And you say, okay, this is what we are then let's start to figure out what are the, the next set of tactical steps we can do go to sort of start going down that, that journey.
0: My guests today have been David Staley and Dominic Endicott. They have co-authored Knowledge Towns, Colleges and Universities as Talent Magnets. Gentlemen, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.